Welcome to Central Coast Voices, a program that addresses the challenges faced regionally, the need for and consequences of change, and how today's choices impact tomorrow's community. This program is an extension and production of Action for Healthy Communities and provided in collaboration with KCBX. Today's host is Chris Kington Barker, and our guests will be talking about building political resolve for climate action at local and regional levels in ways that are measurable, replicable, and scalable. This program has been recorded at an earlier time, and any questions for today's guests can be emailed to voices at kcbx.org, and they will be forwarded to them to be answered. Over to you, Chris. Okay. Thank you, Hank. It's always a treat to get to work with you, by the way. I miss you. you. Me too. Yeah. Uh, Founded in 1970 as a response to the 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill tragedy, the Community Environmental Council, or the CEC, was a pioneer in the fledgling environmental movement. The voices with me today are Michael Chukos, a director of climate policy with CEC and Molly Taylor, climate smart agriculture program manager with CEC. Michael and Molly will be helping inform us about the CEC's ambitious plan to fight the climate crisis and its vision to become safe by 2030, right around the corner actually when you think about it. We'll also be discussing recently passed legislation, so there is a lot to cover today and I want to thank you both for joining me. Just in case that real brief intro that I made for the CEC really doesn't um, doesn't satisfy, can you talk a little bit more about what the CEC does and kind of the expanse of your tentacles with it? Yeah, so as you heard, CEC has been around for over 50 years. Uh, Molly and I haven't been around that long, but uh, (laughs) CEC has a very... um, I have. (laughs) Has a very storied past uh, with 50 years of environmental action. We're we're very well known for solutions um, and bringing forward solutions. In the the 70s, we pioneered recycling in our communities. Over the years, we've worked on everything from hazardous waste reduction to organic gardening to watershed resources. Uh, But in the last 15 years, we um, pivoted to really tackle the existential crisis of our time, which is climate change. And um, in that last 15 years, we've really been building a lot of programs. We started with uh, programs to reduce fossil fuel use and reduce carbon pollution. So everything from moving our region uh, forward to 100% clean and renewable electricity uh, with community choice, which some of your listeners may have heard about um, in on-site solar and all kinds of different renewable energy programs. Um, Also working on clean transportation so we can redesign our cities so that um, we have alternatives to driving a car that are easy and safe. Um, And then when we drive, we are uh, choosing electric vehicles that um, that really reduce carbon pollution as well as um, have zero tailpipe uh, emissions. And um, it, now we're really focusing on the building sector as well, how to get natural gas out of buildings. So that's kind of our, our flagship programs over the uh, last um, 15 years or so. And now we have some new programs where we're really focused on resilience and adaptation and climate justice. So the three counties that we really operate in are San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, and Ventura counties. But I'd say that, you know, part of our power is really engaging in statewide networks and bringing that um, awareness uh, 
to the region and then vice versa, bringing regional voices to the state levels. So making sure that that conversation is happening and that state policies are really informed by local um, experience. Lately, there have been some terms that, you know, some of us have heard things like the Inflation Reduction Act, Infrastructure Act, um, and some of the California legislation that's been coming about. Can you talk about that in more detail? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I can start with some, some ag points and then Michael can take okay, it from there. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so the Inflation Reduction Act is definitely adding some significant wins to our sales. Um, the USDA has a number of programs that fund uh, the adoption of Climate Smart Ag. One of the newest programs that is due to, to this year is called Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities. And uh, the funding for that program like nearly tripled uh, from $1 billion to $3.5 billion. So you can imagine the significant impact that's going to have on the adoption of climate smart agriculture throughout the nation. Um, and then on the state level, uh, there are a number of climate policies that have recently been signed into law. One of which that we've been focused on at CEC is AB 1757, which would require California Air Resources Board to set targets for carbon sequestration on natural and working lands. And that might sound a little wonky and maybe like hard to, to envision the impact of something like that, but it's really important that uh, the Air Resources Board be required to set these targets. There's great precedent um, for when those targets are set for renewable energies, zero that funding follows that. Um, but when we don't have targets, the, the momentum to reach quantifiable reductions sometimes doesn't follow. So we really get funding and uh, scale nature-based solutions. So when we're talking about, um, for instance, in in ag, you know, um, when um, agriculture is trying to make these changes and what the funding is going to go to, can you give me some examples of how that funding would be used and how it would actually be implemented in an agriculture environment? Yeah, there's a number of programs out there. One of the most popular programs currently is the Healthy Soils Incentive Program. There's also the Healthy Soils Demonstration Program, but these two programs are funded by CDFA, so they're state program. And that money really incentivizes the transition from maybe current day management to something that they maybe haven't tried yet or maybe costly, but hopefully will demonstrate its viability after um, kind of like a pilot period. Um, So I'd say that that's really kind of the most popular program. And I think there's something like $80 million in the, in the budget for that program this year. You know, if we were to break down, because I know that a lot of people that listen to the show really are very educated about what's happening with climate change. And um, when we talk about some pieces of climate change, there's a lot of uh, awareness around it, and then others not so much. And agriculture ch- climate change, we're talking about there. there is climate impact from dairies, example, or there's climate impact from raising cattle. There's climate impact from 
the industrial use of machines that are in agriculture, right? Or the chemicals used in agriculture. Does all of that affect um, air quality? Yes, all, all of that definitely affects air quality. And I think, you know, the goal of scaling climate smart agriculture is both to reduce emissions associated with some of those practices, right? Like we can we can use well-researched and well-documented best management practices to reduce methane emissions, reduce the use of synthetic fertilizers that, you know, results in greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but we can also enhance the drawdown, the actual offsetting of legacy emissions by managing our soils um, because the healthier soils the bigger the potential is for those soils to be able to store carbon which is really what we're trying to achieve here is um, turning that excess gaseous carbon dioxide and you know our atmosphere and turning it into solid stored carbon in our soils and is that practice perhaps more costly to the farmer or to the cattleman um, in doing, and is that how some of the the money that's available will be used to offset some of that additional expense to them? Yeah, so one of the kind of cool parts of increasing your soil health is that you are also thereby increasing your productivity. So there is an agronomic benefit to implementing these practices. However, nine times out of 10, a farmer or rancher who's increasing their soil health will also increase uh, their productivity. Okay. And so this kind of helps buffer that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, how about, Michael, talking about um, moving into some of the clean energy from electric vehicle incentives? Yeah. Well, we are. Um, the last couple months has been such amazing progress on climate. Um, and in the Inflation Reduction Act, this is really the biggest in- investment the federal government has ever made and, and really will allow the U.S. to um, claim some leadership on climate action that hopefully will help other nations be emboldened as well to say, okay, well, the U.S. is now in. And um, this legislation is uh, expected to reduce our uh, carbon emissions 40% by 2030. So a pretty huge uh, reduction in, in carbon emissions. And so um, what it does is it, it really ramps up the incentives for uh, wind, solar, and renewable uh, energies. So there's kind of been a boom bust with, with the tax credits there, but now they're, th- they're set at 30% for the next decade. And that really allows those uh, project developers to have some stability. Um, that also uh, is for energy storage and um, other clean tech uh, that can really help to generate more renewable electricity. And then, as you mentioned, yes, in the transportation sector, um, so they've uh, extended the uh, $7,500 federal tax credit for electric vehicles. So previously that um, ran out for companies that had sold a lot of electric vehicles like Tesla ran out a few years ago and GM and then Nissan and Toyota, some of the other ones were about to run out. Um, So it's uh, really fantastic for uh, people purchasing new electric vehicles, although there's also some onshoring of the supply chain requirements that are in this. So um, people really have to make sure that the uh, specific model that they're um, looking at qualifies for the full tax credit, because the intent of the legislation is to 
um, bring the production here to the United States, as well as some of the, you know, mining and minerals processing so that they have more uh, clean energy jobs that, so that they're not all going to China and, and other countries. Um, and then there's, so that there's that $7,500 federal tax credit that's getting extended, as well as a new $4,000 tax credit for used electric vehicles. So we've never had this before. And as long as you purchase a vehicle at a dealer, um, and this starts next year, uh, at a dealer, as well as the purchase price is under $25,000, um, and there's some income restrictions, but most people could then receive a $4,000 tax credit on a used electric vehicle, which um, will be very helpful uh, for two thirds of Americans that buy used cars, not, not new ones. Um, and then there's a whole host of other uh, uh, tax credits that can help people in their own homes. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about adding insulation or new energy efficient windows, you could get a 30% tax credit starting next year on a lot of those things to, to weatherize your home and make it more efficient. Um, also, there's some provisions uh, to get uh, natural gas out of buildings. So um, like at my own home, we've replaced our natural gas furnace with a highly efficient heat pump, which is an electric uh, appliance that does heating and cooling, which is a big benefit. I know a lot of Homes on the central coast, uh, especially the coastal ones, don't have air conditioning and it's getting hotter and hotter. So this is also an adaptation thing where um, you can not use uh, natural gas anymore. You use a small amount of electricity because it's, it's very highly efficient and then have um, cooling as well. And so there's um, a $2,000 uh, tax credit for, for heat pumps. You can also use them for water heaters rather than use a natural gas um, water heater. And so uh, there's a whole host of other um, tax credits people can learn a, a, a lot more at. I think um, one of the best websites to check out for that is to go to um, whitehouse.gov slash clean energy. And it's a really great, easy to use website for um, how people can see the, the, the uh, climate benefits and the different uh, tax credits that, that they're eligible for. Okay, I want to, uh, I'm going to take a real quick break for just a station announcement. But what I want to ask you about is kind of the flip side of some of the questions that people ask about electronic electric cars and some of the challenges with that. I'll be right back to you on that. Um, I'm Chris Kington Barker with your Central Coast Voices on KCBX, your Central Coast listener supported radio station. The voices with me today that you're hearing are Michael Chikos, Director of Climate policy uh, with CEC and Molly Taylor, Climate Smart Agriculture Program Manager with CEC. We invite you to, um, unfortunately, we are not live today. We are uh, pre-recorded, but we still encourage you, if you have a question for Michael or Molly, you can email it to voices at kcbx.org and we'll make sure that they get them and are able to answer your questions for you. And Michael, you know what, something that I hear occasionally from people is, you know, okay, so we're going to have these electric cars and we need to charge them. So if we put charging stations in our home and that jacks up our electricity rates, how are we going to afford that right now? Um, is there a period of time where there's an imbalance in that? And how do we get longer distances on batteries for electric cars so that that's not quite so onerous in traveling? 
Is that yeah. something of the works? Yeah, definitely. And, and you get at some really good points there. The good news is that electric vehicles are already much uh, cheaper to fuel than a gasoline car. Mm-hmm. Um, so most electric vehicles get are very energy efficient. They get the equivalent of around 130 miles per gallon. So if you can imagine getting that type of fuel efficiency, um, you can often charge up for uh, around $2 per gallon equivalent. So that's less than half the price of gasoline. Uh, if you're charging up at home and it's very convenient rather than going to the gas station, um, you know, once a week and spending that five or 10 minutes pumping that smelly gas, you just come home, plug your car in, takes 30 seconds, uh, fuel up. Uh, you might only need to do that. Like we just charge our electric car once or twice a week. So it's really a lot easier than money, um, mm-hmm. as well as the emission reduction benefits. And they're really fun to drive and have a lot of torque and, and, and power. 350 days out of the year, it's really convenient to just be able to charge up at home once, once or twice a week. When you do go on a road trip, though, you do have to find fast chargers. And depending on the type of vehicle that you have, um, you know, you can charge your car like the Teslas are probably the fastest and some of the newer um, electric vehicles from other manufacturers. It might take 20 or 30 minutes to go from almost empty to about 80 percent. That's kind of the fastest part of the charge. Um, and usually after driving 200 miles, you want to stop for 20 or 30 minutes and have like a lunch break or something. Um, in fact, my wife and I, we drove a uh, charging network that's, you know, coast to coast. So we went all the way to Utah and back on a three-week road trip, 3,000 miles, camping down dirt roads, you know, BLM roads outside of Canyonlands National Park. And so there's a, a really great network. But even with all the uh, other electric cars from the major manufacturers, uh, the fast charging network is evolving really quickly. My dad has a Chevrolet Bolt. He, uh, this summer, took it up to Seattle, uh, did a couple-month road trip and, and went all over the place. So it's pretty amazing that maybe 10 years ago, people have this conception of, oh, an electric mm-hmm. car only goes 100 miles and I can't take it really out of town. Um, right. And then in just one decade now, you can do these long road trips and uh, the technology's um, changing and, and developing really quickly. How is the infrastructure going to be accommodating the fact that more people are going to be reliant on grids? Because right now, if there's a lot of people on the grid, you have rolling brownouts, you have blackouts. Is, is that part of the Infrastructure Act? Yeah, definitely. So um, right now in the three counties on the central coast that we serve, we have over 2,000 charging stations. So they're all over the place. And if you get mm-hmm. an app like or the website like PlugShare, you can see the charging stations um, in the places uh, that you want to go. So yes, uh, the the infrastructure bill is rolling out a huge amount of charging stations. So the the infrastructure bill, um, well, the the Inflation Reduction Act had about $370 billion in climate benefits and climate programs. And then the inflation or the um, uh, infrastructure bill had about $80 billion. And a lot of that is went to charging infrastructure, about 7.5 billion. And so uh, with that, they're developing really this like, coast-to-coast network on interstates and rural routes of fast charging stations so that you can do the longer uh, road trips. In terms of charging, most EV drivers actually charge off-peak. And there was a lot of 
hubbub about the blackout that never was in terms of, oh, don't right. charge your car between four and nine. California experiences, you know, climate change driven, unprecedented heat wave where we use more electricity, more um, the grid demand was the highest than it's, than it's ever been before. Um, and so you heard that messaging about, yeah, don't charge your, your car, or big appliances between four and nine. But hey, that leaves 19 hours of the day that you can charge your car. And, you know, like I mentioned, most people only charge their car once or twice a week. So mm -hmm. you can just time it to charge at night when uh, the grid isn't experiencing high demand. And even if you're on a road trip and need to charge at, at 5 p.m., there, there typically is plenty of capacity. Um, you know, we, we didn't have any brownouts or, or blackouts. And um, the California Energy Commission has actually put out a study and they found that um, there's only uh, less than 1% of electricity demand, even with over a million EVs on the road in California right now, came from EV charging at peak times. Mm -hmm. And so that's way, 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 order, orders of magnitude less than like air conditioning or some of the big loads that our grid has uh, hand, you know, been able to handle over the years as, as we add new loads to it. So there's a lot of grid planners that are working on this and um, uh, listeners can be, um, you know, uh, safe to say that, that there's plenty of charging opportunities out there. It's not going to brown out the grid, but if you have a choice charge when it's the cheapest, which is off peak at night or in the middle of day, when there's a lot of solar and renewable uh, electricity on the grid and just avoid that four to nine time period, particularly if there's a massive heat wave, like the one that we just had. Now we're, you know, we in California really are kind of the lead of the pack, if you will, in this country, for do, taking these kinds of climate change uh, initiatives very seriously and trying to move them forward. There's a lot of the country that is not. And so how, how is this infrastructure, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Act moving those other states forward? Yeah, well, definitely um, a lot of the Federal Inflation Reduction Act uh, items that we talked about, such as the wind and solar. I mean, these are these are mm -hmm. huge projects that are happening all over the country. All, right. all of the tax benefits, et cetera, are able to be used all throughout the country. And we're really seeing um, a, a lot of uh, we've hit an inflection point in electric vehicle adoption. And you're right here in California, we are leaders like um, mm -hmm. I think in recent years we've been around 16 or 18 percent of uh, new vehicles being sold are electric. Um, so that seems really high. But in China right now, they're hitting 25 percent of new vehicles. In Europe, many countries are in the high teens or in the 20s for, for EV sales. So many of them are ahead of California. And the um, auto industry is a global market. So the, the manufacturers are really building the vehicles for China and, and for um, Europe in there in California, but also for, um, you know, the rest of the United States and, and knowing that this market's really going to pick up. The other thing that happened, um, we can, you know, talk also some about these California climate bills, but um, one of the big things that happened this summer is that the California Air Resources Board um, passed the regulation to phase out gas cars. So by 2035, all vehicles sold are going to be electric. And so if we're at 16% now, we're going to double to around 35% by 2026, and then 2030 hit 68% to get to that 100% by 2035. And there's actually um, 
about 14, 15 other uh, states that follow the California rules, and many of them will also pass similar phase outs. And these are you know, legally enforced phase outs of gasoline vehicles. So yeah, many of these other um, states are watching what happens here in California and then um, following what we do here. Will that include large long haul vehicles as well? All vehicles or so private vehicles? Yeah, the 2035 goal is just for uh, light duty um, cars and trucks. But California is phasing out um, larger, heavier duty, like um, I believe the numbers for buses by 2040, um, uh, our whole bus fleet um, will be switching over to electric. Um, and then also for heavy duty trucks as well. So yeah, California is definitely going electric and the technology is ready in there and, and we're really um, leading the, the, the US on this. Once we do all of that and we hit those goals, how long does it take to actually clean the environment, clean the soil and what are the projections for actually turning things back? Yeah, well, and Molly can speak a little to this, um, but basically in, in a nutshell to decarbonize, what you need to do is switch to 100% renewable electricity and, and our region in California are really on that path. Actually, one of the bills that just passed um, right now, the um, or previously, uh, California had a carbon uh, neutrality executive order by 2045. And now they've codified that into law. So it's legally binding to get to carbon neutrality by 2045. And previously, we also had a target to get to 100% clean um, and renewable electricity by 2045. And then the interim target was 60% by 2030. And so this last legislative session, they upped that to 90% by 2035. So we're going to go much faster to 90%, which is kind of easy to do. And that last 10% of the, the clean electricity is a little harder. So we'll have more time, but we'll get most of the emissions benefits by 2035. And then, yes, redesign our cities so that it's easier to not need uh, to drive everywhere and switch to electric vehicles. That's happening, as we talked about with the regulations. And then figuring out how to get uh, natural gas out of buildings is another big thing that we're working on. Um, so basically, I think um, the carbon reduction strategies are very um, well figured out. And we're kind of on this glide path of like, we know the things that we need to do and, and we found the political will to do them now. So now we just need to get to the brass tacks of, of uh, doing all the things, which is really fantastic. And then Molly's program really focuses on, okay, how do you take those legacy emissions out of the air? As well as um, CEC, we have um, another program that she can speak to uh, um, called Climate Resilience. So how do you prepare for those impacts that we know are already happening. I mean, many people 10 or 15 years ago thought, oh, this is going to happen to my kids. And now we're like, wow, this is happening to us, these heat right. waves and the droughts and um, the wildfires and just the, all the climate challenges that we're, we're finding. Um, and then we have a climate justice program, which is how, helping to, to figure out how to make sure that we have this transition in a very equitable way. And how do we direct resources to the uh, disadvantaged communities or or the um, underserved communities that need the most help and resources to to do this transition. Well, great. You've laid out a wonderful plate for what we'll talk about when we come back from a really brief break. And Hank, I'm going to send it back over to you. 
The Road Home is a weekly radio show of music rooted in American tradition, and that's a tradition built on musical influences from all over the world. I'm Marisa Waddell. Tune in every Thursday night for The Road Home, Americana music, its roots, and its branches, with plenty of new releases and lots of favorites, too. That's Thursday nights from 6.30 to 8, right after All Things Considered, for any time on demand at kcbx.org. Welcome back to Central Coast Voices and welcoming back my guest, Michael Chiakos, Director of Climate Policy with CEC, and Molly Taylor, Climate Smart Agriculture Program Manager with CEC. A reminder that this show has been pre-recorded, but if you have a question for today's guests, they welcome hearing from you. You can email your questions or comments to voices at kcbx.org, and we will forward them to Molly or Michael. And Michael, you were kind of making a long list of all kinds of different things that we could be talking about in the second half of this hour, and I'd love to indulge you. So where would you like to start? Um, I think we are talking about some of the um, strategies that CEC is using to reduce fossil fuel use, um, as well as uh, the, the, the ways that the federal and state uh, climate bills and legislation that have passed really have some wind at our backs and will help our local efforts here on the Central Coast. Um, I love so, that you keep talking about wind coming in, yes. <laughs> right? Is that a segue? <laughs> well, so we have that path of what it looks like to, to reduce our emissions, but how do mm -hmm. we draw down those legacy emissions? Um, and that's something that Molly can speak to as well as um, how do we prepare for the impacts to climate change? And we have our whole climate uh, resilience and adaptation program as well. Molly, are you there? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, okay. I think I think one of the, the more exciting aspects of you know, this idea of drawing down legacy emissions with within the agricultural sector is that, you know, I think we grow, we, as kids, we were told that, you know, photosynthesis was like planting a tree, but there's really so, so many other ways that we can sequester carbon that, you know, don't necessarily come to, to mind immediately. And, and that's not necessarily a fault of anyone's. It's just that we've over the last decade or so really discovered that, there are these um, kind of emerging practices that really do enhance soil health and by proxy enhance the capacity of soil to sequester carbon. So um, I think building awareness around those practices is, is really important and also just ensuring that both the agricultural community as well as the public understand that these are scalable solutions. Like these, this is not just at the micro scale. It's not just permaculture, backyard gardening that we're talking about. We're talking about really bringing to the table industry and um, making pretty meaningful uh, advances in sequestration. Can you give some examples of those? Yeah, so uh, right. a couple of projects that CEC has been involved with. Um, these are two demonstration projects, which meant which means that there was uh, you know actual uh, research being conducted at both sites. But um, you'll you'll hear the common theme here is compost application. I don't know if that's like crossed your uh, path before, but yeah, in one project, 
we worked with a rancher in San, uh, Santinez Valley to spread compost on rangeland. So that's a more of a broad acre application of about a quarter inch of compost. Um, and as a result, the ranchers will see increased forage production, which ranchers love because that means there's more feed for their cattle. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, we're building the amount of organic matter in the soil. And by proxy of, of increasing that organic matter, we're also increasing the water holding capacity of that soil um, and uh, allowing that soil to capture carbon. So that was one project that we did with the rancher. Uh, we also partnered with a large uh, citrus grower in Ventura County to study the effects of compost application and mulch application in a commercial uh, lemon growing uh, operation. And really it was a pretty similar goal, which was to um, identify basically increased water savings and uh, increased productivity within the citrus context. Um, but both demonstrations were successful, indicating that you know there is real potential within local agricultural industry to implement these healthy soils practices and see real sequestration as well as real productivity gains. Yeah, and given the drought that we've been facing, anything that's going to allow a farmer not to have to use as much water is going to be a benefit for them. Yes, definitely. It, it, by doing those demonstrations, is that something that, you know, typically uh, a farmer would not really have the liberty of doing alone unassisted? Yeah, I think one of the things that CEC brings to the table is just the ability to bring together a network of folks who come from really different backgrounds. And, and that really lends itself to, you know, these larger collaborative projects, because it takes quite a bit of effort to coordinate and um, get, you know, cooperative extension, resource conservation districts, um, and actually bring those people to the growers and facilitate that conversation, design a meaningful project, actually execute the project over a multi-year timeframe, collect the data, um, you know, generate reports, administer the grant funds. I mean, there, there's a lot that goes into these projects that we definitely are, you know, equipped to handle. Some of what um, has always been interesting for me is, you know, when we talk about things like um, trying to be more conscious about how we're using materials, how we're disposing of materials and not, you know, and recycling and using the right materials and not using the wrong materials, it seems as though the ability to recycle and the availability of recycling plants has been diminishing rather than increasing. Is there anything that's helping that change or shift? So actually the state is required to um, reduce the amount of green waste that is going into landfills. And one of the ways that they can meet that reduction mandate is by generating compost with the green waste. They can also divert the green waste from getting to the landfill, you know, in the first place. But um, if it does get to the landfill, then, you know, they can make compost with it, which has these proven um, climate benefits when it's applied in an agricultural setting. So I do think that there's an increased awareness that 
you know, we need to reduce methane emissions from uh, landfills, and then we can use mm-hmm. both the material that is not going to contribute to methane emissions in the landfill setting, but then be brought out into agricultural fields, applied actually sequester carbon and bring real fertility to the farming system, which, you know, if we're lucky, can also reduce the dependence on synthetic fertilizers. So there's a lot of co-benefits that, you know, start to become apparent once you really get in and and talk with farmers and ranchers about um, these practices. Yeah, and in speaking of farming and, and food, I just wanted to add that CEC has also done some work around reducing food waste. And so listeners may be shocked to hear that 40% of food that is actually um, grown in the United States is wasted. Yeah. And 40%, you think of all the water and the fertilizer and the, the resources that went into growing that food, and then it goes to a landfill and creates methane. So it's a double pr- problem. And so we've had some um, different projects where we uh, match up large uh, food generators. So this may be like um, caterers or uh, uh, large institutions with folks that need, need the food and have a nonprofit that then bring that prepared, often prepared food directly to um, needy people that um, can eat the food within, you know, the next day or two, because right. it, it does, it is, uh, have a limited shelf life. Um, so that's another excellent strategy that reduces carbon emissions and then has a, you know, helps to feed people and makes our whole system a lot more efficient. Is that something that's going to be more of a, um, a program that yeah. is going to be more universally displayed or distributed? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we did some very pioneering work over the last few years on this. And now there's been some uh, state law that was passed where basically every city and county in, in California needs to hit certain targets to reduce their food waste going to their landfills. So um, it's not as much of a, a, a more cutting edge solution, which we try to focus on. And, and now it's going to be more of a cultural practice in California to, to have local governments figure out how to get food waste out of our system. Yeah. If you just look at the number of restaurants and, um, and supermarkets and suppliers that are turning that stuff over, it's phenomenal, just phenomenal. Um, talk a little bit about solar. There was a, what's what's happening with solar there was a period of time where it was really going gangbusters and then kind of the compensation for it started to be pulled back a little bit has that now gone forward again has that become more robust what's what's going on with solar well i'm happy to share with you that solar is still going gangbusters (laughs) um yeah uh, there's just huge amounts of solar being deployed every year Um, solar is actually the least expensive way to generate electricity, even solar plus storage. So like with our community choice aggregator, Central Coast Community Energy, we're seeing that these long-term contracts that they're signing um, for new build solar plus storage are the most affordable electricity by far that that you can get. So definitely on the utility side, um, solar is, uh, is very inexpensive and being deployed significantly. And then um, what you referred to is actually some changes in in the net metering law. We're about to get really wonky, but basically 
the amount of money that residential homeowners would get for putting solar on, on their house and mm. when they overproduce energy. Right. Um, so there's some changes that are happening in that program. There's a lot of out, um, outcry and, and the, the Public Utilities Commission decided mm. not to go with the plan that they had established and they're taking some time to review and we're expected to see a new uh, plan later uh, this year. But in general, the price of solar and storage are, 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 are getting cheaper and cheaper so that um, even if you can't export as much solar and, and get a credit, you could get a battery and then you could just use that solar in your battery and just you know, consume the energy whenever you want, even during that peak time when it's the most expensive. Um, so yeah, the solar industry is still very healthy and um, I would encourage anyone who's interested. Now there's also this new 30% tax credit. It had been phasing out. So it was 30% and then went to 26% this year and was set to go to 22% and then 10% uh, and expire. Right. Um, and now it's 30% for the next decade, so. Okay, so at least for that period of time, we're gonna take a real quick station uh, break. And when I come back, I wanna talk with Michael and Molly about how individuals who are underserved in communities can also access all of these different resources that we've been talking about and what kind of plans are being made for that. I'm Chris Kington Barker with you for Center Coast Voices on KCBX, your Center Coast Public Radio, your listener supported radio station. If you recently joined us for today's show and want to listen to the entire broadcast, you still can. It's available on our website at www.kcbx.org under the On Demand tab click on Central Coast Voices and you'll find this show and many other past shows to choose from. Michael Chiakos, is that correct? How do I say that, Michael? Michael Chiakos. Chiakos, sorry about that. Chiakos, I love that even more. Um, Director of Climate Policy with CEC, Molly Taylor, Climate Smart Agriculture Program Manager with CEC. Um, we have just a little time on the air uh, left. We're in the three-quarter hour. While this show has been pre-recorded, you can still email questions or comments to voices at kcbx.org, and we'll see that they get to Michael and Molly. And Michael, you had mentioned before we cut to the break that there is there is planning in place for how to also provide services for underserved communities because a lot of what we're talking about switching to electric cars you know that they're um, putting solar on houses there's an expense involved in that changing practices in agriculture and farming um, what is incorporated into some of these policies and some of these changes yeah, well, Molly I, also, yes. Yeah, I can definitely get into um, some of the different uh, programs that, that are mm -hmm. going to be developed. Um, but first, I wanted to just mention that CC also has a newer climate justice program. And um, we uh, formed the Central Coast Climate Justice uh, Network uh, with a social justice organization uh, named Cause. And, uh, and uh, this is a, a large amount of environmental and social justice organizations coming together to find common ground and really helping and supporting each other. So this has been um, a really wonderful uh, new network on the Central Coast. And um, some of the early uh, 
work items, we're really trying to get uh, more inclusive planning processes so that all the diverse voices of our region can be heard in different government planning processes like climate action plans or um, different vulnerability assessments, um, as well as uh, language access so that um, you know, folks can uh, receive some of the different workshops or, or um, be able to, uh, to you know, have, have uh, different outreach materials in Spanish as well. Um, so those are some of the uh, emerging in, in our climate justice programs, just really getting ramped up and we expect to, to be doing a lot more. Um, we are really excited to see in the Inflation Reduction Act that actually about 40% of the funds they have, um, Justice 40 is, is what the federal government calls, is really targeted towards uh, communities that are underserved or the folks that really most need the help. And so um, I mentioned some of the different uh, tax credits that will be available, 30% for solar and storage and energy efficiency and windows and, and insulation, all of these things, heat pumps. Um, so that's just everybody can, can um, receive those tax credits, but there's also going to be some um, specific state-run programs that will offer low to moderate income households uh, different rebates. So rather than a tax credit, there would be a rebate like for a heat pump at point of sale that could be $8,000. So much higher than the $2,000 that would be available for, for all tax filers. Um, so there's gonna be various programs. I would encourage um, that website, uh, cleanenergy.gov um, is a really good one to, to peruse, see what um, tax credits you may be able to, um, or rebate programs you may be able to qualify for and then also get on the list. So when these state programs do roll out and there's the rebates, first come, first serve, that people will be ready to um, be able to, to get a rebate. Um, another one that we mentioned briefly before that could really help um, lower income folks um, is the used electric vehicle tax credit. So imagine if you could um, get this new tax credit, $4,000 for an electric vehicle for a used one. Um, and then that would enable folks that buy used EVs to be able to get the benefits of electric vehicle, like being able to charge up your car for a, a dollar or two a gallon, or some places it's even free to charge up your car, um, be able to not produce uh, all the pollution, et cetera. And Molly, how about from the ag side? Yeah, so our, our climate resilience program is really, you know, understanding and and looking at ways to incorporate um, under-resourced communities because you know we know that the effects of climate change are not felt equally amongst all people um, you know some of us when we're experiencing extreme heat or smoke can go somewhere else <laughs> or stay inside and turn on the ac but you know if uh there there are definitely significant portions of our population who don't have that luxury and how are we going to, you know, protect those people from those dangers like extreme heat and um, dangerous air quality. So CEC is exploring um, extreme heat initiative, which would look at piloting cooling centers and other ways of, um, you know, offering respite to people who maybe don't have access to other ways of, of protecting themselves from the extremes of climate change. Um, and then just on a state level, I would, I would mention that, 
you know, we're seeing an increasing commitment at the state level to earmark state dollars uh, for under-resourced communities. So like 25%, for example, of the Healthy Soils um, incentive program is earmarked for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. So we're really starting to see a much more institutionalized effort to incorporate um, those populations in, in incentive programs and resilience programs. Yeah, and I would mention also, um, I talked about some of the federal incentives that could be used for low to moderate income folks. Um, but there's also a lot of different state rebates where if, if you have a low to moderate, and these are pretty generous sometimes, over $100,000 for a family of four would be considered moderate income, um, often can get an enhanced rebate. So rather than like just the $2,000 that the state would give towards um, most people that uh, want to purchase an electric vehicle, there are some income limits on them. Um, but if you have a low to moderate income, you could have an enhanced incentive of $4,500. And then there's some other programs as well that are um, from different, like Central Coast Community Energy and, and other uh, local regional rebate type um, for the low to moderate income folks. So I think there is a lot of support out there. Um, it's just really hard to understand this new technology yeah. and electric vehicles. And also if you live in a multifamily property and don't have access to charging at home, it's more difficult. So we've actually um, won some different grants over the years and, and are gonna be ramping up a, a new one um, in the next year to help low to moderate income folks to really understand uh, with you know, individualized purchase guidance and you know, green car shows in some of the different communities where they're isn't a green car show like in San Luis Obispo or, or Santa Barbara, um, but get out to some of the um, other communities of our region where they may not have as much familiarity with electric vehicles and really um, help them understand all the different um, rebates and, and enhanced uh, financial incentives that they could tap into to get an electric vehicle. Are there plans or maybe you already have it for the CEC to have an outreach arm to reach out to communities that may not necessarily know how to access you or know even anything about you or um, that these things even exist? Um, and, and for workers that work in the communities with uh, organizations and agencies to inform them about some of these resources that uh, they can help inform others about. Yeah, definitely. Um, we have um, a whole host of, of uh, different staff that go out and do community education um, and including community ambassadors that are bilingual and um, in English and Spanish and, and can help um, really provide resources to the Spanish speaking community. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, there's uh, actually right now is uh, called National Drive Electric Week. So there's a bunch of different events that are happening across the Central Coast where people can go and talk to EV owners about their electric vehicles and see our booth where they can learn about the different rebates and, and get some help understanding, um, you know, electric vehicles. So there's um, going to be some different events uh, and people could just search for National Drive Electric Week, San Luis Obispo or Santa Barbara County. There's ones in, in San Luis Obispo City, in Santa Maria, down in Oxnard and in, in Ventura. Um, so all throughout our three counties. 
Will you be doing some work and outreach with organizations like Capslow and some of the organizations that do reach out into other other communities like migrant communities or into healthcare communities like through community health centers? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, so with our most recent grant, we had a partnership with uh, the Promotoras who yeah. typically do uh, Spanish right. language health mm -hmm. education and, and they're learning about electric vehicles Perfect. and reaching out to the populations that, that they work with. So yeah, we're, we're trying to really um, get a broad and um, large network of all kinds of different organizations that can help us with this message um, about making the clean energy transition accessible to, to everyone. What do you, how do you respond to people that go, you know, it's just, it's daunting. I mean, I just don't see it happening and I don't know what I personally can do, except um, you got like a one word response or a short sentence response to that. Um, I remain hopeful about the, the climate solutions that, that we're seeing. And um, I think that we have a lot of resources to help people if they want to take action in their own lives. So definitely our website, cecsb.org is a great place. Electricdrive805.org is another place to learn specifically about EVs. Um, but yeah, we're here to help anyone who wants right. to make those choices as well as push for the state policy and the local policies so that it just happens. <laughs> Yes, excellent. I want to thank my guest today, Michael Chiacos, uh, Director of Climate Policy with CEC, Molly Taylor, Climate Smart Agriculture Program. Next week, please join host Mario Espinosa Kulik as he talks with his guests about monkeypox. Uh, Such Coast Voices has been sponsored by Action for Healthy Communities and the San Luis Obispo Community Foundation in collaboration with KCBX. I'm Kirk Sington Barker, and thank you for joining us today. Mm -hmm.